Aloha and welcome to Thumbing Through Yesterday, the podcast where we take our favorite books off the shelf, dust them off, and remind ourselves why they were important to us. Joining me today, we've got Tony Pasculi. Yep. What are we talking about today, Tony? Today we're talking about one of one of my favorite books, which is a Heinlein juvenile called Have Spacesuit Will Travel from 1958. Have Spacesuit Will Travel. Yeah. This was not one I had read before. Um, I've read a lot of Heinlein, but that was not one of them. And I actually was not aware that he had the juvenile series. He did. This is the last of his juveniles. He wrote 12 altogether. And, uh, and they really all hold up. I've, I've read them all multiple times. I love these books. And one of the interesting things about the juveniles is that they're not really juvenile. I mean, there's a couple of things where he dumbs stuff down for a younger audience, but really it's the same Heinlein you get in his adult novels. There's a lot less sex. There's a lot less sex. <laughs> there is definitely less sex. <laughs> but other than that, a lot of, you know, a lot of the themes, a lot of overlapping themes. He talks about, um, he talks about virtue a lot. Uh, he talks about technology a lot. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and he talks about preconceptions a lot. So as one of his, one of Heinlein's recurring themes is that people have these biases and they tend to assume that the, the biases that they grew up with are the way the world actually works or actually should work. And one of his favorite things to do is to poke holes in that argument and say no, by exposing people to other cultures and saying, no, your biases are just your biases. Other people work in different ways and just get used to it. So. All right. So what is it about this book that, uh, that qualifies it to you as a favorite? What is about it enchants you so? That I... That is such a good question. I, I, I mean, it's not, it's the obvious question. I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I love this book though. I just, I, I love, uh, I love Heinlein. I know Heinlein is kind of problematic and uh, even a little bit polarizing. I think he's a fantastically progressive author for his time, but you know, his time was not a particularly progressive time, but this book, we used a word last time, which was innocence. There's something about this book which is very, very innocent uh, and hopeful, and it really appeals to. It really appeals to me because of because of what it represents for science fiction, um, which is a there's this trope in sci-fi, an early sci-fi called the competent man, uh, where where anything could be solved by by good people uh, who had a working knowledge of science and technology. There was no problem that you couldn't tackle uh, if you were just a good person with uh, with some engineering skills. I'll definitely say that these two youths that, uh, that the story centers about are, without a doubt, the most competent people, <laughs> I have, let alone children, the most competent people that I've ever encountered. And and what Heinlein does that I think is is kind of remarkable is that for the most part, well, Pee Wee is a genius, uh, but uh, but our but our main character is. Oh, our main character, whose name I have forgotten. I was about to say, what was his name? I forgot. I, I remember oh his spacesuit's name. His spacesuit is called <laughs> space Oscar. Suit is Oscar, <laughs> right? Uh, oh, this is embarrassing. Okay, I've read this book. I don't know how many times. What is his name? Kit. Kit. Kip. 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 There we Kip. go. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, he's he's just an ordinary schlub. Or he he claims to be an ordinary schlub, or thinks of himself, identifies as an ordinary schlub. He, he has no idea what an ordinary schlub actually is. He really doesn't. It turns out his dad is also a genius in some sort of in some super secret organization, not to be named. Uh, one of the most important men on the planet, who's chosen to retire to a small town in the middle of nowhere to leave a simpler life. Uh, that's that's fascinating to me. 
But um, but he's sort of coasting through his life, Kip is. He's he's not doing anything special. He's not remarkable in any way. He's taking a bunch of blow-off classes in school. Mm-hmm. Until he stumbles on this thing, he realizes he wants to go to space, and he's, he's found a way to do it. He can win a contest and go to space. And, and he decides to bend his resources towards that. And when he does that, he discovers uh, a sort of a new depth. And his dad kicks his ass a little bit about that, goads him, and saying, well, if you're going to do this, you can't just coast into this. you got to apply yourself. And his dad, being who he is, sort of pushes him. Um, but yeah, and he, he discovers a remarkable depth to him. And I think that's a thing that Heinlein, it's a thing that I appreciate about Heinlein is because he, he's not... An elitist, well, he is in some ways in his adult books, but he he's, especially in this book, I think he's not an elitist. He thinks that anyone is capable of this sort of thing. Anybody who knows what they want can go after it. Anyone can be the hero. Uh, it's not reserved for certain people or certain types of people. Yeah. And this this goes back to that comment I made earlier about these being the most competent people right, <laughs> I've come across. You know, it, it's... Certainly, it's, it's a fantastic fantasy and a lovely little bit of idealism to say that you could take this, this adolescent or you know, prepubescent boy mm-hmm. and confront him with the fact that what he thought was work and intellectualism up to this point was, in fact, tripe. Um, mm-hmm. And with just a little bit of an of a unflinching message, suddenly set him on the path where he's going to self-develop and self-actualize uh, into somebody that knows enough about math and science and, and reality that um, ultimately he can repair a spacesuit, yeah. um, make it spaceworthy. Well, he does, he does dedicate himself to that. I mean, he gets a manual and he gets the supplies and he's, you know, ravaging through the catalogs and whatnot. But there is a disconnect that in, in Heinlein's characterization where, where he starts off as being a guy who's just taken nothing but nonsense in school, as his dad characterizes it. Yeah. And then suddenly turns out to know, you know, uh, the distances to our nearest galactic neighbors. He can work a slide rule flawlessly. Uh, He can do complex math in his head. Um, You know, tensor calculus is not a a surprising thing for him to know as a high school student, uh, which is like, I don't think I've taken tensor calculus and I was a math major. Um, So, yeah. But that's, again, that's the thing that I love about this book and about Heinlein's sort of of world is that it's a world where ordinary people study tensor calculus at the high school level, where everyone just sort of knows their galactic backyard. They know basically what the planets are and how far away they are. This is not a thing most people know today. Um, so, uh, yeah, I love that. It's, it's, it harkens back to the, this is, you know, this is pre-moon landing. This is 1958. Um, there's a lot of excitement about space exploration at that time, which kind of fizzled out for us uh, as we grew up. And that was very, you know, sort of very disappointing to me. Uh, and I think Elon Musk is sort of generating some new excitement about that now. But I, but I love this idea that, you know, we were just going to like solve all the world's problems with technology and science. So I still can buy into that. Um, <laughs> Totally, you know, and that's that's the thing that's still carried into you know Star Trek and other you know yeah. almost utopian visions of of near future and distant future. This is a, this is an interesting read for me. There were parts of it that I, that I really did enjoy. And there were parts of it that were, I just felt like he missed. The, oh the yeah, boat. I think so too. <laughs> um, you know, the, the whole mother thing, um, really just seemed like an odd choice for me for, if you're going to write a book about juveniles targeted for juveniles, mm-hmm. um, having one of the central 
tenets of that book be a character whose superpower, for lack of a better word, is being a good mom seemed like a really strange choice. It didn't seem like something that I would have much empathy for then. It was certainly something I didn't have a whole lot of empathy for currently. That's a that's a good point. There was actually uh, a recent movie called Mars Needs Moms, uh, which flopped basically because of that, because, you know, the target demographic didn't want to identify as needing moms. Uh, they wanted to be more independent. But this is this is Heinlein being Heinlein. And, he, you know, back in this time, he didn't have to appeal to as wide a demographic to be successful. Yeah. And he's going to put his own biases in there. <laughs> and this is, a, this is a recurring bias with, with Heinlein is this the importance of mothers. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if that's fair to say that. I think mothers are important to all of us. But it comes up a lot well, Yeah, I don't work. want to be dismissive of that rule. <laughs> you know, but the fact that... But for an adolescent know, boy, you think this is surprising. Yes. Yeah. Right. And, you know, the, the, the fact that uh, that creature ends up being a driving force for the the latter half of the book and you know indeed ultimately um as they're contending for the survival of the human race you know in part it's the the contribution of super mom that that buys us you know we don't get pardoned we get a (laughs) we get a a parole right they're going to check up on us again in a few thousand years few tens of thousands of years yeah yeah the uh the mother thing the mother thing is interesting in that I mean, she is on the one hand, she's a super mom, but on the other hand, she's a bug-eyed alien. A bug-eyed monster is how he, uh, she's initially described. But she's a cute bug-eyed monster. She's a cute bug-eyed right? monster. As yeah. opposed to Wormface, who is a horrific bug-eyed monster. Yeah. Um, and then you talked about uh, preconceptions. In that particular case, um, Wormface fills the preconception of bug-eyed monster, right? He's elitist, uh, racist, um, superiorist. Uh, just evil in every meaningful sense of the word and, and proud of it. Yeah. For, for all of Heinlein's loving to be the one to sort of burst those, uh, to, to subvert a trope, he leans into that one pretty hard by making yeah. the evil aliens really disgusting and the good aliens uh, cute and fuzzy. Yeah. Yep. So, although even the good aliens, even the mother things, people, I mean, uh, she's... She is almost, that race is almost godlike in a way. They are not, uh, and I, I don't mean godlike in, in power. They are godlike in power also, but godlike in the sense of, yes, I can be just and merciful, but I can also be your worst enemy. I can wipe you out with a blink. Well, they did uh, that, right? Yeah. They, they condemned an entire species to death based on the testimony of, of an individual, the actions yeah. of an individual. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a power dynamic there. There's a there's a uh, an overlord dynamic <laughs> there in the whole three galaxies one law consortium, which I don't think had a name. Did it? I don't remember. I don't recall no. it if it did. But uh, yeah, there's there's a certain level of okay, these are the good guys, but you know, like Old Testament God, just because he's the good guy does not mean <laughs> this is good for you. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So what what else didn't work for you? I'm curious. You know, I mean, there there are some Manini things in there. Um, Manini's Hawaiian for small, by the way. Um, there are some small things in there. Uh, they give him a couple of drugs. They tie him down to a couch. And then he suffers through a two-week trip at 8G acceleration. Mm. Um, and at the end of it, he's a bit sore. You know, I don't uh, think the human body survives 8Gs of acceleration for multiple weeks. Um I mean, the, 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 the human traders, right? At least they had special acceleration couches or yeah. acceleration cushions, but he got strapped down to what he described as the spare couch, yeah. right? The sofa. 
That's a good point. I kind of let that go. Um, there are things you have to let go in, in, <laughs> in sci-fi, especially like this. You know. But I mean, on, on something where he paid so much attention to detail and where some of the details, you know, from 1958 are still salient and, and accurate today, um, that was a hard one to swallow. <laughs> Speaking of detail, one of the things I really appreciate is the detail about the suit itself. And the suit becomes, and I and I don't mean this in a metaphorical way, the suit becomes another character. It does. The, the, the suit has a name and a voice uh, and speaks to our main character, Kip. But he his exploration of, of what, of the practicalities of a spacesuit, and this is before, this is again, it was before we put men into space? I don't remember. 1958, space program would be going. We yeah, going? Okay, so we had men in orbit by in then? The, I don't know if we made it to Gemini yet, but certainly we're in Mercury. Okay. All right. Uh, but we didn't have another. We didn't have a man on another planet yet, so we didn't have a sense of what it would take to walk around another planet in a spacesuit. And yet he's got a lot of the practical concerns, which actually I don't think are in modern spacesuits today. This idea of the chin switches, of having drugs and water accessible to you inside your suit, uh, of the. Um, of discovering some of the impracticalities of the suit as he actually puts it into use on the surface mm -hmm. of the moon. Um, you know, not having a rear view mirror being the main one. <laughs> yeah, and again, some of these were, were in the context of the book, we're in a universe where men are in space. Um, and, you know, this space suit, he finds out, came from a space station. The, mm -hmm. the previous owner had spent years in that suit working on the outside of a space station. So these are design flaws that are not novel. These are not something that, that Kip has been the first to discover, right? You've had yeah, yeah. working Joes in these suits. There's, there should have been, and who knows, maybe we just don't get to see the fact that there's been an evolution of spacesuit technology, right? The, the yeah. prize that he won for the contest, surely those are cast-offs. <laughs> right? And, and yeah, they were. Yeah. He was, Oscar was almost non-functional. Oh, yeah. Right? He was non-functional. Uh, that's a big chunk of the early part of the book is him making Oscar functional. Yeah. You know, uh, getting all the seals airtight, restocking with all the equipment, replacing damaged and uh, obsolete equipment. Um, One of my favorite little sub passages in there deals with him trying to get the radio working. Yeah. Um, and he, he learns enough about radio technology that he can actually build a replacement radio that does what the radio is supposed to do, but he can't get it to fit in the space in the helmet. <laughs> so he finally breaks down and opens the catalog to buy it and finds out that because it's obsolete technology, it costs him a few dollars. Yeah. You know, and he was so pissed at himself. <laughs> um, it's like, oh, I've wasted all this time. And, uh, who hasn't done something like that? Yeah. So one of the books this reminds me of actually in that in that level of attention to detail, that obsessive level of attention to detail, which which turns a lot of people off about science fiction. A lot of people come to science fiction and they want a they want a good story, they want an adventure, they want action. And and I want this. I want technology. I want technical detail. And it's very much it reminded me very much of The Martian, which is mm -hmm. the ultimate mm -hmm. just, you know, I'm just gonna go into detail of how I'm gonna survive on yep. potatoes for the next six months. Uh yeah, but this is of course way before the Martian. But I but I love that. I love that about this book. So, yep. And I I'll split the difference there. There there are definitely <laughs> I love details about the the science in science fiction books. Um, but there's a, a point. I love practical details. Mm. Once once they start plumbing into to theory a theory level that uh, you have to have the background in mathematics or physics or whatever the relevant science is to even understand what they're talking about. Um, yeah, my eyes start to blur and I nod off. Did that happen in this that book That did not happen in oh, this okay. book. This, he, right. he does a really masterful job of being detail-oriented without taking us beyond where a reasonably 
well-read sci-fi buff uh, would be comfortable. So one of the things that didn't work for me in this book, I was surprised uh, at how, how much it stuck out, was the characterization characterization of, of his early nemesis on Earth, Ace, the jerk at the soda shop, who just... <laughs> Who's just a sore thumb? It's just like, oh, this dialogue is so bad. He's like, he's a cartoon. This guy. He, he is a bad cartoon. He's Bluto, right? From from the old Popeye cartoons. This, this is yuck, yuck, yuckity yuck. Yuck. He actually. That's. He's not exaggerating here. He actually says yuck, yuck, yuckity yuck. That's his dialogue yep. in the book. They they actually poke fun of the fact in the book that this is how that character laughs. Yuck, yuck, yuckity yuck. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's he's a. A bully, um, but uh, there's there's no weight behind. It. I, I, you're right. This is a hard character to accept as being real because I don't see how you could come up with a confluence of events where this character actually presents himself as that character presents himself and hasn't been taken down by <laughs> literally anyone. Exactly. Yeah, it's a weird for me. It's a weird misstep in this book, which which mostly works for me. And again, this may be because I read it at a tender age and it just lodged itself in my subconscious somewhere. But I still, I still enjoyed it, even in this most recent rereading. I still really just love the heck out of this book, uh, with that exception that Ace is just like, ugh. Yeah, and I'm trying to, ugh. as far as I can tell, I mean, he, he served two purposes in the book. He gives us the, the name. He gives us the title, yeah. Um, and then he pays off the, the joke at the end when Kip gets to throw a milkshake in his face. Uh, say, I didn't like that either. This one is on me. Yeah, um, yeah. But I mean... Literally, why exactly did Kip not throw a milkshake in his face two years ago when he first got the job at the, you know? Because he's a, he's a good kid. He's, a, he's the one who follows the rules. Uh, and, uh, and, and this is somebody that, you know, the, the shopkeeper actually comes in and intervenes a couple of times to save him from this terrible person whose entire litany of sins consists of saying some slightly rude things and going, <laughs> yuck, yuck, yuckity, yuck. I mean, this... <laughs> You're right. He doesn't fit. He, this, he, he was put in as a placeholder. Heinlein meant to go back and actually insert a character. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Time. You know what I would have loved to see Ace? Uh, I would have loved to see him be pulled forward as one of the witnesses for the human race at the end. Huh. And I think that would have been, that's the kind of thing I think Heinlein would do in some of his adult books is pull this, this hated cartoonish villain into a different context where suddenly you have to have empathy for him because he's standing alongside you on the chopping block to be condemned with the rest of the human race. And what is he going to say? And is Kip going to stand up for him? Because standing up for him means standing up for all of humanity. Uh, what is Ace going to have to say for himself in that context? Uh, that's a that's a missed bet on Heinlein's part, I think. So, well, yeah. Things he should change if he were to do a rewrite, yeah. That's, you know, one of the things when I think about my favorite books is there are a couple of books that I, um, that I say, if someone offered me a uh, billion dollars and said, we think you're the next Peter Jackson, what trilogy do you want to film? Um, you know, and that would, that would be the Titan trilogy by John Varley. Or if they gave you a bunch of money to make one standalone science fiction film, take a book and adapt it, it would be this book I would love to adapt huh. as a movie. Yeah. Interesting. And I, I've been thinking that for years, and I had that in my mind as I was rereading this. And as I'm rereading, I'm like, this is not, this would not hold up as a modern science fiction film. There is not nearly enough action. It's a very, very heady book. It's got great characters, uh, but the action scenes are mostly being stuck in a spaceship, walking slowly across the surface of the moon, uh, <laughs> walking slowly across the surface of Pluto. <laughs> I'm not sure you're doing a good job of selling this project right now. 
No. But you're right. You're right. The the action is all cerebral. Yeah. Right. It's you know his fear of you know how are we going to make this forty mile trek across the surface of the moon? Yeah. Um, we don't have enough air, or you know Pee Wee doesn't have enough air. We don't have an effective way of transferring air. Holy crap! Her spacesuit has no food, no water, no drugs, and yes, you know. She but, was dehydrated and starving when we started this trip. Mm-hmm. But these are not things, you're right, these are not things that are going to translate into, you know, there's no laser battles, there's no yeah. cutlasses. There should be cutlasses in there a space be, pirate there movie. There should be cutlasses, there absolutely should. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but as a counterpoint, The Martian, fantastic film. Uh, and it's it's very similar. It's what is The Martian about. It's a slow drive across the surface of Mars with a lot of potato farming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. And that particular example, we're, we're drifting off a little bit, but I mean, the, there was so much of the book that I enjoyed that got left out in the film. And there has to be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But again, there, there are things that when you're reading them can be dramatic. Um, but if you're watching somebody sit there... <laughs> And try and figure out the ratio of Martian soil to human excrement to get a potato. Yeah, that's that's not good yeah. cinema. So it would be a challenge. It would. It would be a challenge, but it's you know, you know what would make this work as a movie for me is it's got a really I think even at the time it had this sort of retro futuristic vibe. And I don't know because I didn't read it in its original context. I wasn't born until after this book was published. Um, but it it feels futuristic and dated at the same time, and that is a is a wonderful sort of tension that I enjoy, that that retrofuturism, yeah, yeah, that yeah. that hope and optimism, which a lot of modern science fiction does not have. Modern science fiction is gone. It leans towards the dystopian. It leans towards uh, cultural differences. Um, there's a lot. It's a lot more nuanced. We don't have heroes and villains. We have complicated people making complicated choices. And that's and that's not bad. I, science fiction had to grow up as a genre or or run the risk of just running itself into the ground. But I but I love to return to this kind of thing. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, there is a, a simplicity to this, you know. And, you know. There there are a couple of premises I had hard time swallowing. Like I said, the the super competent youths uh, being one of them. Um, I'm going to say that's a trope. And you just got to have to <laughs> okay, accept it. Well, but again, you know, when, when you make up your mind to accept it. Okay. So yeah. this, this, how old was he? 14, Kip is, he's 15? in high school. So he's, I think he's 16 or 17. Okay. And but she's 10 or so, 12. Yeah. yeah. This, this 17 year old and this 12 year old are both more intelligent and more competent human beings than I currently am and can even aspire to be, uh, you know, their breadth of knowledge and their ability at, um, implementing that knowledge, um, and improvising to make it happen. Um, they're super kids, right? So in, in a way, this is their superpower, I guess. They are. They are. Well, they're, you know, it's the, the trope is the competent man. And in this case, it's a competent boy and a competent girl. But yeah, um, they're also, uh, it's interesting. Kip talks a lot about virtue. Heinlein talks a lot about virtue. Yeah. Heinlein is big on virtue. And that's something that we, that again, is, I think is missing in a lot of modern science fiction. Um he talks a lot about what it means to be a hero in this book, which is something I also enjoy. Yeah. Uh, and he, he goads himself uh, at the thought of, of being, um, you know, of dying and being thought of as, as less than a, the man he should have been in the circumstances. Yeah. Uh, so. Heinlein definitely is big on the, the heroism and yeah. the, the importance of the, the individual as part of a society. Yeah. yeah. Um, what is his quote? It better to be a better to be a dead lion than a live louse is his quote. Yeah. Huh. Uh, and of course the best thing is to be a live lion, but that's not always an option. 
He's got another great quote in this, which I, I hadn't remembered where it came from. And then I ran across it again in this book. Uh, there's a world of difference between Roger and Wilco. Yes. I love that quote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was disobeying an order not to go after somebody at the time. I don't I, I don't remember the context. I just remember the quote. He was doing something that he was being encouraged to not do. It was, um, it's Pee-wee. He's talking to Pee-wee and saying, don't do something. And she says, yes, I remember when she should have said, okay, Kip, I will. Right. Slip of the tongue? No. Yeah. Uh, and Wilco, for those who don't know, because Wilco sounds like a synonym for Roger, is short for will cooperate. So Roger means... Will comply, will cooperate, yep. Or Roger means I hear you. Yeah. Roger means I hear you, and Wilco means I will do that. Yep. Yeah. So. And so this is, you know, we talked about this in the last episode. This is one of those cases where the author is counting on us to have that knowledge, right? Because it's, <laughs> it's not explained. That's true. Although you, yeah. could, uh, you can infer a lot contextually there. Yeah, yeah. I felt kind of smart when I, when I caught that <laughs> joke, actually. <laughs> He, yeah, he gives his readers a lot of credit. Okay, I'm going to hop over to another Highland Juvenile because I started going a little Highland Juvenile jag uh, after I read this. And I, and I picked up one that is probably the weirdest Highland Juvenile. And uh, it's called Star Beast. And it's about a kid who owns an alien. Uh, and the alien grows very large and breaks out of his yard and does a bunch of damage. And they want to destroy it and they can't for various exciting plot-related reasons. And uh, the fascinating thing about this book, A Juvenile, is it is almost entirely a legal drama. And you think, oh, it's this cute story about a kid and his <laughs> lovable alien. <clears throat> and there's going to be hijinks. There's about five minutes of high, five pages of hijinks at the beginning. And the rest of it is just legal drama. It's all in the courtroom and it's, it's emissaries and ambassadors and, uh, and stuff like that. And it, and it works. It's still, it's very dramatic. It's very, very Heinlein. But it's just, it's a weird, weird topic for a juvenile book. Yeah, it's hmm. very strange. Well, this one definitely did not go where I expected it to go. Interesting. Right. Where did you expect it to go? Well, I mean, that. okay, on, on one level, it totally did, right? Half spacesuit will travel. <laughs> Clearly, we're going to have a, a youth hero who ends up in possession of a spacesuit. Mm -hmm. um, and as you said, hijinks ensue, right? Yeah. He's, he's going yeah. to go on space-related adventures. Yeah. Um, the space-related adventures were completely not of the sort I envisioned, right? I mean, even though we are dealing with space pirates, you know, they, they mm -hmm. label them as such, there's no space piracy. Uh, That's we, true, We don't yeah. get to, you know, like you said, most of the drama of this book consists of, I'm incarcerated and I need to get out. <laughs> Something's broken and I need to fix it. I'm in the wrong spot and I need to get to the right spot, right? These, there's no, uh, there's no... There's the no conflict battles. is all There's in a, uh, I'm trying to survive. Yeah. It's not, I'm trying to overcome. It's, I'm trying to survive. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't compare to something like Pirates of the Caribbean at all. Uh, yeah. When you think of piracy, there's no, there's no shipboarding. There's no, com there's a little bit of combat. I think somebody trips somebody at one point uh, and somebody knocks somebody else out. And that's about it for combat. There's a little bit of shooting yeah. with, a, with an energy weapon at the end. But, yeah, but we never find out what is the piracy, right? Yeah. Well, all we know is that the, the worm faces have a base on the moon that nobody knows is there. And yeah. they suspect they're up to no good. And 
it's strongly implied that there's a there's a human traitor, right? Because when they, yeah. they actually successfully make the forced march to the human base, what happens? They're picked up by the pirates and yeah. returned to the. I think I think base. piracy is a is a mislead. I think they're referred to as pirates, but they're not. They're not pirates at all. In fact, their their plan is I'm not sure how explicit this is, uh, but their plan is just to to move in and farm Earth for meat. Uh, human beings are going to be meat for the worm faces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that's not really piracy. That's that's just invasion. Yeah. <laughs> that was Pee Wee's label, as I recall. Okay, could be, could be Pee Wee speculation. Yeah. Yeah, this was a this was definitely an interesting read. It was not. It was part what I expected, and part very different. You know, and and in part, you know, because the uh, the lead supporting characters, the mother thing and the worm face, um, neither one of which were what I expected out of a Heinlein uh, book. Yeah. Um, and I don't think I articulated it to myself at the time, but in part because of the nature of the drama. It was like you said, it's, it's not, this isn't Star Wars, right? This isn't space it's, opera. It's not, um, yeah. This is a case of a poor kid being in the wrong place at the wrong time, swept up in events, and then, which is not an uncommon beginning to the, to the epic struggle, right? But again, he simply is trying to make it through. You know, every step of the way is like, somebody wishes me harm, I'm trying to get out of this. Yeah, it's um, in a way it follows the the sort of uh, Top Gun space camp model of sort of, you know, I, I want to I, I have um, I'm preparing for this, but I'm preparing just to prepare. Mm-hmm. And then whoops, I get swept into the actual situation by some accident. But because I've been preparing, I'm actually take advantage of my of my preparation. You know, like I, f- I forget what the space camp kids, how they end up in space, but they do. And Top Gun, of course, are preparing for war, and they do get a they do get a chance to show off their skills at the end. So, and I think that gets called out here as is you know fortune favors the prepared mind uh, that that he is able to be as successful as he is because he was so dedicated to uh, prepping Oscar and doing all the right things to make him space worthy. So when he does have a chance encounter with an alien spaceship and gets captured, he happens to have a working spacesuit with him. Yep. So yeah. Well, talk about depending on contrivance, though. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the series of events that led to he had to be in a spacesuit, in a functioning spacesuit, taking a stroll, happening <laughs> to call out the call sign Pee-wee on the right frequency on the radio at the same moment as somebody named Pee-wee is actually making a desperate escape from the moon in a stolen spaceship for this whole thing to kick off. Yeah, I mean, there, that there's, is... There's, there's contrivance, and then there's... There's this. I thought having the peewee that was that was a little that was a step too far uh, for me. But yeah, it's fun. It's Wait, fun. Right. So if, yeah. if we're going to swallow this, you know, go ahead and go ahead and go big or go home, right? Yeah. Yeah, I could see a more conventional book being he wins the he wins the uh, the trip to the moon and discovers something on while he's on the moon he has a chance encounter. It makes more sense. But this is very you know, this is very Heinlein. It, this reminds yeah. me of the Heinlein book. Have you read Glory Road? It sounds so familiar. It's a, it's a fantasy novel. It's actually science fiction. It's couched, uh, science fiction couched as fantasy. But it starts off with a guy answering an ad in the newspaper. Uh, someone places an ad looking for a hero. And he goes, okay, it's got to be a joke, but I'll, I'll check it out. Uh, and nope, somebody's actually looking for a hero. And they place that ad looking for that guy specifically. They had scouted him earlier. And he goes off on this huge fantasy quest. This actually sounds familiar. Yeah. Probably read it somewhere <laughs> in the dim and distant past. But. A weird and wonderful book. 
uh, as so many Heinlein books are. Yep, Heinlein is a favorite author of mine. Uh, yeah. I tend to enjoy his stuff. On the list of movies that should have never gotten made, Starship Troopers. Oh my goodness, well that's not Heinlein. Uh, I was just thinking about this the other day. Um, people ask, you know, I was reading a discussion, this, why is Starship Troopers the way it is? And, and my response to that is, is they decided to make a movie that rejected the book as thoroughly as they could. <laughs> and not that they didn't like the source material, but that they, they had a dislike for the, for the ideological points that Heinlein Which was trying to make. Which is two-thirds of the book. Yeah, it is. Right. Yeah. And I can see taking exception to those points. I mean, he, he, he takes a, in the guise of science fiction, he takes an extreme position in order to sort of trot it out and examine the argument from both sides. And I don't think he's really advocating for it, but he, he, he takes the position that citizenship voting, uh, the franchise, is a right that has to be earned. Mm -hmm. uh, citizenship is a right that has to be earned, and you earn it through military service. Well, it's a in, way to earn it. Yeah, it's right. a way to earn it. So in this context, uh, you don't get the vote unless you serve in the military. And, uh, and that was perceived as, as fascist and anti-democratic and da-da-da-da-da. But it's, you know, this is a case where, so in, in Starship Troopers, yes, in fact, the bug war happens. Yes. But it's a minor portion. It's like a third of the book in the middle, yeah. right? Yeah. The book is not about the bug war. The bug war is simply something that happens while the book is in progress um, to help shape our characters, right? And the bugs actually in the novel are not even bugs. They're humanoid. Yeah. So, I don't actually recall that. It's yeah. been so very long. So the the bug is just a, a name they give them, I think, to dehumanize them so they can kill them more more yeah. ruthlessly. Yeah. So they're, they're, the bugginess of their opponents is is irrelevant. Um, one of the amusing things, the screenwriter for that was just writing a generic bug hunt action movie uh, and uh, was not attached to Starship Troopers at all. And And then he just said, you know, this is kind of like Starship Troopers. Uh, I wonder how close I can get to that without, you know, infringing. And then he found out the rights were available, so they just got it and slapped the name on. Hmm. Um, I and can totally I think, see that. I think when Verhoeven got involved is when all the sort of over-the-top fascist propaganda got got dropped on it as a way of a commentary on the book itself. We've we've wandered off. Of, we have we're way off topic. We have traveled <laughs> with our spacesuit. <laughs> what? Uh, tell me what else you liked about the book. I certainly enjoyed the the read. Through. Again, there, there there were some times I was scratching my head at, at the the choices, but uh, I enjoyed the fact you know we've we've got the the unlikely underdog yeah. um, who does make it through. Uh, triumph is maybe a strong word in this case, but uh, yeah, um, he survives, and thanks to him, the Earth is given a reprieve. Um, you know, and at the end, his big payoff is he makes a fairly mundane choice about what he wants to do with his future. You know, having been through all these things, a lot of his grandiose visions have, have disappeared now. And what does he want to do? He wants to be an engineer so he can work on improving spacesuits. Having yeah. had his life depend on Oscar and, and finding the shortcomings in, in that magnificent suit, this is what he wants to do. He wants to make things better for the next kid that has the adventure. That makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, and I don't know what I, I guess I like that. That that feels very grounded and realistic to me. That uh, that it's like, what can I do? What is within my reach? I will do that. This was an adventure that he stumbled on, as you say. You can't count on stumbling on the next adventure, um, even though that's what happens in sequels typically. But Heinlein doesn't really write sequels. Uh, so what can he do? And he's he's very realistic in his appraisal. So and 
I mean, I can I can totally buy that, but it seems equally likely it could have gone the opposite direction because what you started with was a kid that had no sense of his own worth, mm-hmm. um, who has now done these things that uh, that border on superhuman, uh, yeah. certainly super lucky. Um, maybe he would have had an awareness that hey, I'm something special, and I yeah. should set my high, sights even higher. Well, that's interesting, and I think you know, I think you actually do undersell his accomplishments a little bit. He does, he he muddles through, but he's also you know, down to his actions, he manages to save Pee Wee, he saves the mother thing, yeah. and by extension, he saves all of humanity, uh, not from the the council, but from the worm faces. If that mm-hmm. you know, if they hadn't disrupted that plot, that would have gone through. Maybe the mother thing council would have stopped it eventually, but you know, probably not before a lot well, of no, human he's, lives he's were lost. Intervened in that, yeah, right? So. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, yeah. Um, That's what I'm saying. But he did accomplish mighty things, um, and Heinlein chose to have him learn a lesson in humility from this. But it could have easily gone the opposite way. A lesson in believing in yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I think you know. It's interesting. So you characterize his lesson in humility, but he does believe in himself because what's his ambition before that? Before he stumbles on the contest, he has no ambition at all. He doesn't want to be an engineer. He doesn't have any plan for his life at all, really. Well, no, he, he wants to go to the moon, right? He just hasn't done any sort of thinking about what does it take to get me to the moon. And, exactly. And in fact, you know, the, the book starts off, I believe, yeah. um, with, with him approaching his dad saying, I want to go to the moon. His dad saying, okay. <laughs> But it's an idle thought, right? It's just like, I would like to go to the moon, not I want to be an engineer on well, the moon or I want to be a... It's an idle it? thought to him. It's not yeah. an idle thought to the dad. Yeah, right, right? exactly. Because the dad says, well, what's the problem? I told you you could go. <laughs> yeah. All you have to do is figure out how to get there now. Exactly. And, and he's not being facetious or flippant, you know? Which is, a, which is a great, great character choice. I love that. The dad is the kind of guy, and he hasn't managed to pass this on to his son at this stage in his life, but his dad is the kind of guy who... You figure out what you want to do, and then you do it. And all the rest is just implementation details. Yep. And that's not how most people live their lives. And that is not how Kip lives his life prior to this. He just sort of has wishes and hopes that he stumbles into things. Uh, and it's only f- when he decides to try to win this contest that he really starts to sort of gather his resources and apply himself towards a goal. Uh, and that's something he carries through all the way through the rest of the book and into his into his future. Yeah, so there's, so. there's kind of an awakening there, uh, a coming yeah. into his... I guess this could be a rite of passage type of thing as well. Yeah, yeah. So it is a progression for him. So so uh, I guess I could see it's humility and then his reach is not grander, but it's it's definitely a step up from where he was before. Yeah, it just... So. I applaud the fact that he's got some sort of realistic goal and a reason to have the realistic goal, but it, it seems to me that Kip is at this point selling himself short. After all that he has accomplished as a, as a high school student without any formal education... Yeah. He's wanting to be uh, something relatively mundane, you know, a, a mechanical engineer, so that he can work on spacesuits. It, it's a little unfulfilling to me. Interesting. You know, I want him to get the, the, the you know, the, the end of Star Wars. I want him to have the, the, <laughs> the, the medal of the rebellion, of, of the Republic hung on his chest. I, you know, I want there to be parades. I want there to be an open-ended blank check. Um, and there's none of that. There, there's an implication of that. I mean, he does get swept into MIT. Uh, it's just like, I'm going to open all these doors for you, uh, which was his, his dream uh, college. Uh, and he does get an invitation to do more and to be more. And he 
declines it, right? He says, this is, no, I, I didn't want to stick to this. This is what I know. This yeah. is what I want to do. But I think, you know, knowing who he is and what he's capable of and who his dad is and who's sort of now in his orbit, that if we were to see a sequel to this, that 10 years down the road, is he still going to be designing spacesuits or is he going to move on to bigger things? So I he's, think- he's going to be the, the president of Space Y. Yeah. Right? <laughs> or something. Yeah. Doing something significant with his life. So I have, I just happen to have my, my Kindle open to this page in the book. And this is the thing that stuck with me from the first time I read it. And I've used this mnemonic for the rest of my life to remember the order of the planets. You remember this? <laughs> I remember that it was there. And I remember I was reading this in, uh, I was reading the Kindle too, and I wanted to highlight it. I don't yeah. know if I actually did. Uh, it's on page 100, if you want to go and look it up. Um, so the mnemonic is, mother very thoughtfully made a jelly sandwich under no protest. And that gives the order of the planets. Um, back when Pluto was a planet. Uh, back when Pluto was a planet. <laughs> it also includes an A for the asteroids. And Terra is expressed as, you know, T for Terra as yeah. opposed to E for Earth. Yeah. So... And this is something I use all the time because I can never remember which comes first, Uranus or Neptune, without this mnemonic. I mean, yes, the rest are pretty easy at this point. So, Well, those two are tricky because it's not a consistent answer. Oh, they do. Their orbits do cross. But the, if you go by average distance, yeah. right? And yeah. for the next few hundred years, that works anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Good point. Good point. What, the, what threw me about that was he throws in prices on each line, right? Which is supposed to be the average distance yes. as well. Yeah. And that, I think, does not work as a mnemonic. It doesn't because it's just a bunch of numbers. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure that I can remember uh, thoughtfully as one. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's pretty easy. Although that's pretty rounded off. I mean, the number I remember for that is 93 million. But I don't remember, I don't know the distances of any of the planets. I just use the, there's a basic mnemonic that they're about double the distance out each one, but mm -hmm. not quite. Yeah, so, but even when we get to Mars, I have no idea how far away Mars is, so. <laughs> and we look at Mars the mnemonic. $1.50. I guess that's about 150 million miles. 150 yeah. million, and we're, what, 93? Yeah, I guess, I guess. Should have done it in astronomical <laughs> units, but. Oh, uh, well. I think that's what this is. That's one and a half astronomical units. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. That makes more sense. Yeah. Well, Earth should definitely be one then. It is. Yeah. Okay. It is. I'm just taking, I took it as he rounded it off, but no, he was using astronomical units. One astronomical unit is the distance, the mean Earth from the distance from the Earth to the sun, which is 93 million miles. He does say that here. Yep, yep. Yeah. Mother very thoughtfully made a jelly sandwich under no protest. Made a jelly sandwich under no protest. All right, I'm diving into my highlights here. I have a couple other highlights. Go for it. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is just a quote that I enjoy. The less respect an older person deserves, the more certain he is to demand it from anyone younger. <laughs> <laughs> I can think of examples of that from my own life. Uh, yeah, and uh, we already talked about Roger and Wilco. Well, see, was that a reference to, uh, to Ace that had to be? Uh, oh, Maybe. Well, I can't think of anyone else in the book that he would have thought to apply that to. No, I think. No, who is this? Uh, this is in the context of the, uh, the, he's talking to Unio, who's the, um, the, the uh, Roman soldier from Gaul. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I think he's just riffing. Yeah. I don't think it's a specific other character. Yeah. 
Um, and this is this other quote that I highlight. I don't know why I highlighted this. Vega is way up the Russell diagram, you know. Uh, this is a conversation between two children <laughs> that know that know that one that Vega is a star and where it is on the Russell diagram. Oh, and what the Russell diagram oh, is. See, that was one that sent me <laughs> over to Wikipedia real quick. What is this Russell diagram? Sounds like something I, as an avid science fiction reader, should know. I and he doesn't explain it. He doesn't explain it. And I just I love that. I love that idea about science fiction. That yeah, of course we all love this science stuff, and we're all up in our astronomy, and just you know this is just in our pores. So you know let's just throw it out there. And of course it's not. It's not for me. I have a vague <laughs> idea of what the Russell diagram is, and I don't know where Vega is on it. Yeah, but I love that the characters talk like that. I love when a I love when a writer can just dig into. Uh, good scientific conversation between characters and have it come across as grounded and credible, even if I personally don't understand what it is. I think I don't want the characters to be dumbed down for my benefit. I want the characters to be as smart as they possibly can be, and I will just do my best to keep up. So, Well, this is definitely a book that falls in that, uh, <laughs> that range, yeah. I'm thinking of, do you ever see a movie called, um, it's straying again, uh, Altered States? Uh, the original... Uh, yeah, Paddy Chieski's, uh, it's William Hurt as a scientist doing research into um, isolation chambers. We'll throw scientists in air quotes there. But he's, well, this is, this is my point that I'm making. I mean, the, the science of the isolation chamber and whether it can affect your molecular, uh, you know, uh, expression uh, and turn you into a shape-changing monster, that's a little iffy on the science part. But there's a scene early on in that movie where a bunch of scientists just get together for a party. And they're just, they're casually, and William Hurt is casually making a sandwich, and some guy is talking about something fairly social and normal, and he gets into a conversation with this woman about something that's so detailed and explicit and technical, and it's, but it's just very casual. He just, they're just rattling this stuff off because that is the thing that they're talking about. Those are their interests, and they share them, mm -hmm. and there's no attempt made to explain this to the audience, and he's doing it all while he's making a sandwich, and I just love that scene for that. Yeah. <laughs> so... And I think Heinlein pulls that off a lot in here, too. Yeah, it's just really, really fun. Yeah, there's almost a responsibility as a reader to, to be up on mm. everything he expects you to be up on. Yeah, yeah well, this is, it's flavor. You don't need to know. Uh, and so he doesn't dumb down the flavor for you, and it's there. And if you, if you have an appreciation for it, great. And if you don't, it doesn't affect your understanding of the plot or the this characters. This is true. Right. So, yeah. Uh, it's much better than the... Um, <laughs> It's much better than the convention that emerges in what I, I think of as dumb science fiction, the as you know, Bob, as you know, Bob, uh, <laughs> let me explain something to you that you as a character would already know, but our readers don't, but I feel like they should understand. So I'm going to spoon feed it to you. Yep. Uh, the better way of doing that is to have the, the ignorant character who shoves, shows up and asks a bunch of dumb questions so that we can spoon feed the ignorant character uh, and thereby the reader at the same time. But I much prefer to just have it... Whoosh, just wash over you. Yeah. Well, and that actually works really well, I think, in uh, in writing, right? Because we've yeah. got the, and particularly now with, with the advent of the Kindle and other electronic readers, I mean, literally yeah. it's at our fingertips to, <laughs> to pause and go find out what the Russell diagram is and what bearing it has on Vega versus Saul. This is the sort of thing that in a film or, you know, a podcast, for example, right. um, could really easily just alienate the audience, leave them feeling lost without any idea if it's important or not. Yeah. Um, how, how do you feel, audience? We're talking to you now. How do you feel? <laughs> We've been talking about the Russell diagram for the last five minutes. Yeah, leave some comments <laughs> here about, uh, about your thoughts. Are, are we leaving you behind or you appreciate the fact that we're not dumbing anything down? Not that there's 
this is not a particularly high functioning, <laughs> high We're level not, yeah, theoretical yeah. discussion, but not not at all. Another interesting thing about this book is is the last. It's the last of his juveniles, which is one of the things that makes the Ace thing so surprising to me. It's it's the clumsiest thing I can think of from any of his books, any of his juveniles. That character. Uh, if you look at the villains, the villain Ace isn't even really a villain. He's more of a foil. Um, they're they're much more sophisticated and interesting than Ace. Uh, and those are from earlier books, you know, like Podcane and Red Planet and, uh, you know, so on. Um, now, this uh, this was 58, you said, when it was published? 1958, yeah. Now, he continued writing for quite a while he after did. that. He did, and he got more and more esoteric as he did. He, he sort of disappeared into his own navel for a while. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, don't know if you ever read a book called Number of the Beast. That one doesn't ring a bell. He he developed this increasingly uh, complex mythos centered around a character called Lazarus Long. Okay, I do know the character Lazarus Long. Lazarus Long from Time Enough for Love and Methuselah's Children. Uh, and then with um, with Number of the Beast, uh, a character invented a, a time machine, which actually was not really a time machine. It was an alternate dimension machine. And... Among the dimensions that were accessible to the people with this device were the dimensions of story. So, mm-hmm. uh, so universe as myth was the guiding principle of this book. That that any story actually has an actual existence somewhere in the world. And so these characters were traveling between other Highland novels, basically. Uh, and it turns out the Lazarus Long universe has some sort of central significance to all of that. And so it tied all of his books together in some big, complicated mess where everybody slept with everybody's daughter. Uh, so this is kind of a Rick and Morty. <laughs> it was implemented by Heinlein, huh? Uh, kind of, I, I think it more the other way around. Rick and Morty. Rick and Morty is a brilliant, brilliant show that takes all the best tropes of science fiction and, and then just you know cranks them up to eleven. Yeah, yeah. But I was wondering, and certainly you're probably not in any place to answer this, why he <laughs> abandoned the juvenile series. Ah. Um, uh, that's a good question. I think he just started to write what he wanted to write more. Um, and what he wanted to write was more for adults. I think the uh, the juveniles were moneymakers. I think they were requested by his editors. Um, and, I, and I think, even though I think he does a really good job of speaking to that demo, he also clearly, he's not writing traditional books for that demo. He's, there's not... They're adventure books, but they're weird adventure books, like Star Beast already mentioned, which is basically a legal drama, which is, you know, what kid wants to read a legal drama unless you're already into Heinlein as an author? Uh, we talked about the lack of action in this book. As fun as those characters are and as fun as the basic plot is, it's it's weirdly lacking in action um, because that's not his focus. His focus is on socio um, sociological concerns, uh, interactions between human beings, the way to be a good person, what it means to be a good person in a society, that sort of thing. And these are not the, um, you know, uh, it's not a heist. It's not a, it's not a quest. It's not a... And yet, it was a page turner for me. For me too, absolutely. Right, so yeah. I mean, even, even though there's not action in the traditional idea of, of yeah. you know, an action movie or, you know, there's, again, no gunfights or very little in the way of, of violence or, or direct physical conflict or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I was enthralled, Yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, good, good. I'm his, glad. <laughs> his various attempts to get out of the pit, you know, in, in half gravity, um, yeah. you know, like, well, he should try that. Oh, he's thinking to try this. I actually had the same idea. I ha- oh, that's not going to work either. Oh. I do, I do love that, that it's, there's something, 
there's almost a genre, I think modern science fiction has sort of become divorced from its roots in that um, we have, we always have, we have a split between science fiction cinema and science fiction literature and science fiction literature has really gotten deep, deep, deep into exploring um, sort of cultural ideas and science fiction cinema has gone basically it's, it's action movies with sci-fi tropes. Yep. Uh, and the thing that I enjoy about science fiction, which is just, you know, technology and science and lots of it is kind of left, uh, left behind by both of those camps. Uh, and, and Highland does that. Um, this idea of, of taking idea and exploring the consequences of it, uh, which is something that, um, for instance, Star Trek, which is widely considered to be science fiction, is, is to me is not science fiction because they're not interested in that, that they're interested in using science fiction as an opportunity to explore social issues. Yeah. Right. Uh, so well, I mean, it was originally pitched as wagon train set in the stars. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So something like if you have a technology like the transporter, which, which uh, in one episode we can, we can pull your stored pattern out uh, to fix a problem with a disease, an incurable disease, but you don't use that anywhere else, that just bothers me as a science fiction fan. It's like, you have immortality. You have immortality. You invented it for this episode, and then you threw it away. Simply <laughs> choose not to acknowledge it. Right. Or, yeah. you know, you have the episode where you know, we can't use the transporter. It's malfunctioning. It's harmful yeah. to people. Yeah. Shuttlecraft? Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you remember you have these little bitty spaceships? Yeah. Like the bottom quarter of your big spaceship is dedicated to housing these little bit guys? Yeah. There's there's a serious lack of any sort of internal consistency. Even even not even asking for scientific accuracy, but simply consistency in the Yeah, and I, I don't need scientific accuracy and I'm not one of those people who's a big fan of hard science fiction, uh, where it's like it has to be technically realistic. Eh, I don't care. What I care about is when you if you draw in a new technology or a new idea, I don't care how far fetched it is, but I want you to ring all the changes on it. I want you to examine all the consequences of that thing. Mm-hmm. You can't pull it in for this plot point and ignore like the time turner in in whatever book, uh, Harry Potter book, uh, Hermione has a time turner. Right, right, right. And she uses it just to take extra classes. It's like time turner technology exists. Come on, go back and kill Voldemort before he was born. Do something useful with it. Uh, but no, we're just going to use it for this one plot point and then pretend it doesn't exist after that. So, yeah. That's just a fairly important plot point, you have to admit. <laughs> I mean, the, the resolution of that particular film depends yeah. on them being able to go back and you know, save themselves. Yeah, that's true. They, they use it for that. But then it doesn't exist anymore. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's... Um, there's a, there's a sort of, I don't know, it's not, this is my, my personal definition of science fiction, or at least the science fiction that I enjoy, is when, you, is when you introduce a new idea and then you examine all the consequences of that idea. Yeah. yeah. Or you bring all the consequences of that idea. You've, you've really considered it. And that's, this is a small thing, but that idea of Kip being in the pit and thinking of all the ways to actually get out of the pit sort of is in line with that for me. Yeah, I was, I was yeah. about to say, how does that tie into, yeah. how do you feel that ties into what Highland did in this exactly. book? And, exactly. And, yeah. and there's a lot of examples of that. I mean, and he's, you know, even, you know, starting with the, with the rebuild of Oscar. I mean, yeah. You know, yeah. the identify a problem, systematically try to repair the problem, see where that gets you, analyze the results, identify the next problem, systematically try to... Exactly. You know, if you had a spacesuit and could walk on another planet, what would the what would the difficulties be? What would the challenges be? And yeah. he really gets into the depth of that. You know, you have to 
and we already knew this at this point, but if you if you inflate a spacesuit full of air and you're in a low pressure environment, it's going to turn into a tight, tight balloon. You can't bend your limbs. You've got to you've yeah. got to deal with some way to uh, preserve well, actually, your joints. I felt like I learned a lot about spacesuits, honestly, reading this book, stuff that I had never considered. I've, I've yeah. certainly never dived into the subject of spacesuits particularly. Yeah. yeah. One of the I don't know what it said, what it was you said that jogged this, but uh, there's a moment in there where um, where Kip demonstrates he's still fallible. Um, mm. And they're trying to figure out, you know, the, the three of them, um, Pee Wee, Kip, and the mother thing, are trying to figure out how to get out of the ship. Yeah. Um, but they only have two spacesuits between them. And, you know, the, I'll stay with the mother thing. We can't leave her behind. We can't take her out there because she'll die. Yeah. You know, and there's this discussion and this arguing goes on and, and the solutions, <laughs> the ideas for crazy solutions goes on. And suddenly in the back of his head, Kip realizes... I'm a kid in an adult-sized spacesuit. <laughs> One of the consistent problems I've had with this thing is I have to strap it down so all the excess spacesuit doesn't get in the way. You know, yeah, yeah. Just that little moment of, what are we even thinking about? I'm in a cargo van. I'll just tuck <laughs> her in here with me. You know. Yeah. Uh, I did appreciate that the fact that uh, that hyper competent Kip and and equally genius Pee Wee um, missed such an obvious solution. And the mother thing, you know, the advanced alien, yeah, yeah. lovable bug-eyed alien all missed this incredibly obvious solution to such a mundane problem. That's a great example of treating your characters like human beings because that's how that's how people think. You think, okay, I need a spacesuit to go outside. I don't have a spacesuit. I can't go outside. And that's where your thinking stops. Uh, how can I jury rig a spacesuit? Not can I fit two of us in one spacesuit? That's not a. That's a, a non-obvious solution. Even though it's obvious in retrospect, it really. It did it occur to you before it occurred to them? It did not. You there know, you and, and the same thing when Kip <laughs> says it, I'm kicking myself, going, "How did I not see this?" Right. Because it's it was a repeated. I mean, it wasn't hammered on, yeah. but it gets mentioned more than once. Right. Some of the obstacles that this child is facing in an adult-sized spacesuit. Yeah. And, and for this, uh, those of you who haven't read the book, you have to know the mother thing is quite small. She's like, what, possum-sized or something? She's, she's tiny. I, I felt like she was probably like collie-sized, collie like size? a mid-sized okay. dog. Yeah. yeah, all right. The yeah. description is vague enough to allow you to have her look more or less how you want small her to. Small enough that a, that a 16-year-old boy could carry, carry the mother thing in his arms with too, without too much difficulty. And so yeah. it's, not a, it's not a stretch at all to think that she could fit inside a spacesuit, an yeah. adult spacesuit that he was also wearing. It's like wear her like a backpack or something. However, they did it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. All right. Did we did we beat this one into the ground? <laughs> we have thoroughly discussed this one, indeed, and some other things as well. Yeah, we did get off track a lot with this one. Uh, can't tease what's coming up because we don't know what's coming up. So, all right. So tune in two weeks from now when you will see the next or here rather the next edition of Thumbing Through. Yesterday, it's going to be a surprise, but we promise it'll be good. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.